you guys are way too kind. Uh, uh, my, my son Zeke, he asked me the other day, we were at the doctor's office, so he's like, so are you going to work here now with Dr. DeAndre? And I'm like, no, I can't do anything for anybody. Sorry about that. He's like, you can pray for them, right? I'm like, yeah, I guess so. so. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster. To give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah 29, 11. Well, in the 11th year of King Zedekiah, the limestone walls of Jerusalem broke and fell, and the armies of Babylon entered the city in triumph. That night, Zedekiah escaped, and with a handful of soldiers, he rode northeast at breakneck speeds to the Jordan River. Early the next morning, the princes of Babylon dispatched their swiftest chariots after him. And that afternoon, Zedekiah was brought back to Jerusalem, bound, guarded, and walking. He was barefoot. The princes of Babylon scarcely acknowledged the presence of Judah's last ruler. He was a flea, a tick, an annoyance. They rose, stepped into their glistening chariots, and in a long procession, they led the disgraced king away. Again, Zedekiah was walking. All the officials of Judah were walking. So were Zedekiah's children walking, everyone barefoot, walking behind the grandeur of Babylon. This miserable procession was led to Riblah in Syria to King Nebuchadnezzar's western headquarters. There they ate a substantial meal. They slept in beds made of cedar. In the morning they were bathed by Babylonian servants, oiled, combed, scented, dressed in linens, and led before the king of Babylon himself. And without passion... King Nebuchadnezzar pronounced sentence on Zedekiah, the king of whatever was left of Judah. Then Nebuchadnezzar tapped the table with the tip of his sword, indicating that the punishment should be carried out immediately. Zedekiah's hands were bound behind his back, rope fibers cutting into his wrist. He was placed on stone steps five feet high and forced to look down into a small courtyard. Soldiers brought his oldest son into the yard, handsome, groomed, dressed in purple as befits a prince. And they commanded him to kneel and bow his forehead to the earth. Then with a tremendous axe, they separated his head from his shoulders. Zedekiah moaned, but the guards on either side of him forced him to look on while his second son was beheaded, his third son, his fourth, all his sons. It took two hours. When the last child lay dead, Zedekiah's guards grabbed his hair, yanked his head back, and pierced his weeping eyes with daggers. This, too, was part of the sentence that the dying of his children should be the last sight that Zedekiah ever saw. 
when his nephew Jehoiachin had gone into exile 10 years earlier, Babylon received him as the king of a defeated nation. He was given a, a royal courtesy as long as he lived, but now there was no nation left. Judah had ceased to exist. And on this very day, Jerusalem, its capital city, was in flames. Blind Zedekiah went to Babylon as a criminal in chains. He was not executed. He lived out the rest of his days in the small, sad communities of Jewish exiles. But for every one of those days, he wished he had been killed alongside his children. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah 29, 11. Doesn't quite have the same ring as it does on the bumper sticker or the flowery frame by the front door. Doesn't quite have the same impact on the graduation card or etched into the rock outside the church I grew up at. I don't remember what they were dedicating, but they placed a rock with these words right at the front door, and people would come and go, passing by this perpetual reminder. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah 29, 11. But I'm not sure if we knew the depth and the severity and the seriousness of those words of promise. Like, I, I sure didn't. I didn't know where the words came from or in what situation they were given. I learned later that these words of promise, they weren't giving, given to, to people who were setting off to go and seize the day or channel good vibes or think happy thoughts. They were given to people who were facing the end of everything. Death, as it were. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Even if they're inscribed on a Hallmark card or painted on Hobby Lobby home decor for 1999, I think that these words hold hope and promise when we understand what they really mean and the context in which they were intended. I think it gives great meaning even for our lives today, past, present, and future, and I think it gives even greater purpose. And isn't that what we're all after anyway? Like purpose? We want our lives to count, to mean something, something greater than ourselves. We want our lives to serve some great purpose. But what purpose are we talking about? And for what? Well, today we continue our sermon series called Faith and Culture, where we're looking to find the intersection between faith and culture to open up a dialogue to change us and our world for the better. And today we're talking about purpose. And I think everywhere in both faith and culture, we're searching for purpose. Like the world-renowned theological poet put it, 50 Cent, Get rich or die trying. Life's purpose, right? Or Bruce Lee said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. You put water into a cup, it becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, it becomes the bottle. You put it in a teapot, it becomes a teapot. Water can flow or it can crash. Be water, my friend. <laughs> I have no idea what that means. But Taylor Swift, 
said it's about being fearless, life's purpose, fearless. To me, fearless is not the absence of fear. Hmm. It's not being completely unafraid. To me, fearless is having fears. Fearless is having doubts, lots of them. To me, fearless is living in spite of those things that scare you to death. I think that's actually called courage, but it does, you know, take a lot of courage to be fearless. And yeah, that's maybe a great life's purpose. And while Taylor Swift and Bruce Lee and Half Dollar have a lot to offer, there is this principle in Japanese culture called ikigai. And it means something like reason for being or purpose to live. And it pieces together some conglomeration of what you love, what you're good at, what the world needs, what you can actually get paid for, passion, mission, profession, vocation. And apparently, after taking this online quiz and paying a membership fee of $299 a year, you can discover how to make your life count, how to make your existence actually mean something, how to make sure you don't go to the grave before serving some great life purpose. But here's the thing. I think finding your life's purpose, finding your life's purpose is actually really um, terrible advice. You may say, oh, I don't know what my life's purpose is. Shh. Yes, you do. Of course you do. It's to live. God made you, and simply because of that, you have purpose. Nothing gets created for, you were created for a purpose. It's built into your bones. It's not something to find. It's something to live. And it's really very ordinary and extraordinary in the same breath. I think it's about answering the very simple question, why you here now? Why you here now? Ah, oh, but that sounds so ordinary. Of course it is. Why you here now? Why you? Uh, no one else showed up. Uh, why here? Uh, because I showed up. Why now? Uh, because it needs to get done. There you go. Purpose. Everything about purpose is about doing ordinary things. But as followers of Jesus, it's far greater. It's far greater. Doing ordinary things with a God-centered, extraordinary perspective, not to mention also strength and power. So, like, why you? Uh, because uh, no one else showed up, or maybe because God is asking me to do it. Why here? Uh, because I showed up, or maybe because God put me here for this specific purpose. Why now? Uh, because it needs to get done, or maybe because God is an ever-present help in the present. But your purpose and living it out, that whole why you here now, nobody else, nobody else can give it to you. Your work cannot give it to you. Like, jobs are terrible at giving you your purpose. Like, I don't have purpose because I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor because I already have purpose. Like, your family is also terrible at giving you your purpose because you already have it. Like, like, you don't have purpose because you're a mom. 
you already have your mom because you already have purpose. We think purpose is tied to like the job we have or the school we go to or our home or our marriage or our kids or our hobbies. But the problem with tying our purpose to external things is that external things are, are constantly changing. They're always in a state of flux. So then what happens when you lose your job? You lose your reason for being. Or, or you lose the house or you lose your wife. You lose your purpose to live. But everything about your purpose was already given to you by God when he created you. And that's what makes your life count. That's why you serve some great purpose. God created you uniquely you and God loves you. Therefore, I think purpose is all about accepting and reflecting that reality. That your purpose is to be loved by God and love God and others. There are no commas in that sentence. It all is happening, happening simultaneously to be loved by God, to love God and others. Your purpose is this amazing, incredible, beautiful gift, and from that place, you can begin to explore all the other things that are true about your calling and vocation and gifting and passion, and it's not rocket surgery. It looks like faithfulness to Jesus, loving God and others at all costs, living by the Word of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, real faith and real relationships. Why you here now? Because you've been created by God for this very moment, for such a time as this, to be loved by God and love God and others. And when you become aware of what God has already given you, you're not striving and grasping for more purpose. You're just living out who God has created you to be. Realizing like God has already given you all the value, and all the meaning, and all the purpose you will ever have. You don't have to find it. You just have to start living it. And here's the amazing part. When you begin to live, knowing that you are already immeasurably loved and full of purpose, you begin to see that what you're already doing matters. And that changes everything. I think it has everything to do with the third most popular Bible verse on BibleGateway.com, Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to an online quiz and paying an annual membership fee of $299. No, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to, catch this, his. Wait a second. <laughs> not, 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 not yours. His purpose for them. In the history of Israel, there's a story of David and Goliath, the boy who slays the giant, quite the God-given purpose for his life. He becomes the king of Israel, dabbles in some adultery and murder, and then shortly after his son, King Solomon, with all of his wisdom and all of his wives, after he dies, the united monarchy of Israel splits into civil war into two kingdoms. You've got in the north the ten tribes collectively known as 
as Israel, and in the south, two tribes collectively known as Judah. Well, in 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire rises to power, and they destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. And what they do is they they take the conquered people and they intermix them with other conquered people from other conquered places. And essentially what this does is it wipes their cultural heritage off the map and out of the books of history. So they are, are gone. But then about 135 years later, a new kingdom is on the rise, Babylon. Babylon destroys Assyria and then soon after, the southern kingdom of Judah. And in 586, they destroy Jerusalem, burn down the temple, steal all the gold. And after killing King Zedekiah's sons in front of him and gouging out his eyeballs, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon takes a remnant of those survivors, or better yet, captives, on a long journey into captivity or exile in modern-day Iraq. Not quite the purpose that they had hoped for. Not quite the Jeremiah 29, 11 they had envisioned. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. But this word from Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, 11, which is actually the second most popular Bible verse on BibleGateway.com, it came some 12 years or so before the destruction of Jerusalem, before the wide-scale exile and captivity. When This comes before the people of Judah are ripped up from their homeland and taken into exile to be prisoners somewhere else. Jeremiah 29.1 says, Jeremiah wrote a letter from Jerusalem to the elders, priests, prophets, and all the people who had been exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. This was after King Jehoiachin, the queen mother, the court officials, and the other officials of Judah, and all the craftsmen and artisans had been deported from Jerusalem. So before the ultimate destruction of Jerusalem in 586 and the wide-scale captivity, there was a group from Judah who were taken into exile already, about 598 B.C. And this is what happens when you don't pay your taxes to this superpower in the East. And even on a more real-er spiritual level, this is what happens as a nation when you engage in idolatry, rebellion, injustice, sexual immorality, hatred, violence, subjugation of the poor, selfish ambition, wickedness, child sacrifice, and outright abandoning God. So back in Judah, where Jeremiah is, before the the wide-scale destruction and captivity come, They've got a new king, King Zedekiah, whose nephew Jehoiachin is in Babylon exiled. It sounds complicated, but you're rolling with me. You get it. Verse 3, if you don't, whatever, hang on. Verse 3 says, He, Jeremiah, sent the letter with Elisah, son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, when they went to Babylon as King Zedekiah's ambassadors to Nebuchadnezzar. This is what Jeremiah's letter said. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Wait, 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 hold up. All the captives he. That that is God. All the captives that God has exiled. So, So this is God's doing. 
Apparently so. And in a world where exile means death, that is tough to swallow. But check out what the Lord of Heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says through Jeremiah. So build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Now that's some pretty clear purpose there. Why you here now? Well, why not you here now? Like maybe it's about enjoying what you have and where you are for what you have and where you are. Like that's what God is saying through Jeremiah. Here's your purpose. Live. Build, plan, plant, eat, marry, multiply, make peace, make prosperity, pray. This is your purpose, exactly right where you find yourselves. Remember this, nothing gets created for no reason, no purpose. You were created for a purpose, to be loved by God and love God and others. It's built into your bones. It's not something to find, it's something to live out, and it's really very ordinary and extraordinary in the same breath. In a world where the is hitting the fan and truckloads of are still coming, live, build, plan, plant, eat, marry, multiply, make peace, make prosperity, pray. This is your purpose. But this is difficult. Put, put roots down in Babylon, in enemy territory. Build, plan, plant, eat, marry, multiply, make peace here. Make prosperity. Engage in the welfare, not the warfare, the welfare toward our enemies. Whew, wow. And you know this sounds crazy. So people are going to say all sorts of things. They're going to tell you to do something totally different. But this is what the Lord of Heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams because they are telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. Do not let all those so-called preachers and influencers and know-it-alls deceive you and take you in with their lies. Do not pay attention to their fantasies they keep coming up with to please you or sell their own products on Instagram. Because this is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for... 70 years. And no offense, but that is a lifetime. Especially in the 6th century B.C., that's two lifetimes. Oh, and also, the entire kingdom back home, it's going to be burned to the ground, raped, pillaged, and the new king Zedekiah will have his eyes gouged out after witnessing the murder of his children. But then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good, not disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah 29, 11. 
future and a hope. After 70 years, after the trauma of exile, after the heartbreak and loss and destruction, after you're uprooted from your homes and your livelihoods and your histories to walk for miles and miles far from home, enslaved in a strange and foreign land in what the history books would later call the Babylonian captivity. Even though it doesn't seem like it now and it won't feel like it soon, God says, I will bring you home again. Even though every hardship awaits you and hunts you down like wolves, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Ugh, how can you say that these plans are good? Like, imagine someone hearing these words. I've lost my family. My, my wife and kids just wrenched from my hand. My home is a heap of, of rubble. It still smolders there. My farm, it was ripe for the harvest, but that too was ravaged and set aflame. I've lost everything. My reason for being, my purpose to live. This is not good. This is no hope, no future. This is disaster for the individual. But this verse is not written to the individual. Do you realize that? This verse is not written to an individual at all. This letter is addressing a whole group of people, an entire nation, and what will become of it. The you in Jeremiah 29.11 is not singular, it's plural, and that makes a world of a difference. I know the plans I have for y'all says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster to give y'all a future and a hope. So it's not just you singular, it's y'all plural and everyone after that, all the many generations to come. But right now the situation is bleak. It's a gut-wrenching moment. Like a, a woman handed a goldenrod envelope with papers inside to sign, terminating her marriage. Or like a father who clings to a casket two sizes too small. Or when they call and say, you might want to sit down right now. How do you realize your purpose when everything has shifted and changed. How do you realize your purpose when you're facing a lifetime or two of difficulty? Well, I think it starts with answering that simple question, why you here now? Especially when the situation's bleak, we must remember that nothing gets created for no purpose. We were created for a purpose, to be loved by God and love God and others. To do ordinary things with a God-centered or extraordinary perspective. That's what God is saying through the prophet Jeremiah. Here is our purpose. To live, build, plan, plant, eat, marry, multiply, make peace, make prosperity, pray. This is our purpose somehow, some way. 
For I know the plans I have for y'all, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster to give y'all a future and a hope. In those days when y'all pray, I will listen. If if y'all look for me wholeheartedly, y'all will find me. I will be found by y'all, says the Lord. I will end all y'all's captivity and restore all y'all's fortunes. I will gather y'all out of the nations where I sent y'all and will bring y'all home again to y'all's own land. God does not abandon his people, even those who listen to country music and use the word y'all. We have a deliverance ministry that can help you after service with that. But despite their sin, which ultimately drove them into exile, God was relentlessly faithful to his promises regarding Israel's future. God never tires In his unfailing love and faithfulness, he will and does, spoiler alert, bring them back from exile. But in the meantime, as they learn to face what lies before them, the horrors and destruction of exile, something profound is taking place. Something marvelous happens when the exiles in Babylon learn to live out their purpose. They not only live like they were created for a purpose, they learn to do ordinary things with a God-centered, extraordinary perspective. And here's what I mean. In, In a world where exile means death, these exiles decide to live out their purpose, and four major innovations emerge. Community deepens. So in exile, they stick together. The people stick together for the purpose of keeping their practices alive. Instead of losing their identity in Babylon, the community sticks together. Also, synagogue begins. The exiles gather in a central physical place for the purpose of religious worship and study. The temple was destroyed back home, so this becomes a new development in exile. Instead of worshiping and giving in to the false gods of Babylon like Tiamat and Marduk, they continue to worship Yahweh, the one true God. So the community continues to worship. Then rabbis emerge as leaders for the purpose of raising up disciples. They passionately follow God and lead the community in the ways of God. So then the community, as a result, learns. And then, probably most important of all, Torah is written down. Torah, the law, the first five books of the Bible, gets written down by the priests for the purpose of preservation, dispersion, and obedience. And soon after, the the Old Testament, it moves from being an oral tradition to being written down. So the community produces a lasting legacy. Okay, so uh, sounds like a boring history lesson. What does this even mean? How is this even relevant to my life today? What does this have to do with anything? Um, Well, pretty much everything. Had these exiles melted away in fear instead of living out their purpose? Had they just given up and given in instead of answering the simple question, why you here now? Had they disbelieved that God keeps his promises and that God has plans to give a future and a hope? Had they not stuck together? Had they not continued to worship? Had they not learned? Had they not produced a lasting legacy? We definitely would not know God today. 
the faithfulness of God to his purpose and the faithfulness of these flawed exiles who live out the purpose that God put inside of them, it's given us the very privilege to be loved by God, to love God and others. And we could not have done it without them. Because of their faithfulness to the purpose that God built into their bones, they have given us a future and a hope. And I wonder, a thousand years from now, a thousand years from now, what might they say about us? That we shrunk away when the occasion arose or that we rose to the occasion to live out our purpose, to be loved by God and love God and others. That we stuck together, that we continued to worship, we learned, we produced a lasting legacy. And maybe that legacy, maybe it'll change the future generations and our future world for the better. And maybe it starts with something really very ordinary. Listening being attentive, helping, giving, learning, encouraging. Ordinary and extraordinary in the same breath. What if they were to say somewhere down the line, my life has been dramatically impacted because my dad was a really, really good listener. Or what if my friend in high school saw how much I was struggling and she was my friend? Or my next door neighbor went out of their way to help us or, or someone, I don't even know who, they gave us money when we were struggling. Or my teacher taught me so much about math, but so much more about life. Or my mom encouraged me when I felt like quitting. What if because of that faithfulness to the purpose that God built into your bones, there's a future and a hope? I was uh, 19 years old. I was about to embark on the trip of a lifetime. It was one of those long college summer months where, you know, you have all this time off. And so I decided to, to go and, and live with a missionary in Eastern Europe for this long summer. And one of my best friends, Jeffrey O'Dell Bonesaw Barnett, who used to be a pastor here, he, he was going to join me and we were going to embark on this adventure together. I was searching for meaning in my life and purpose. I had just finished my first year of college and I was like, what am I going to do with my life? I switched my major like three different times. I had friends who were joining the Peace Corps, others wearing business suits, going to business school. There were some who were thinking about bartending. I'm like, these guys, have, they have their purpose all figured out. What about me? What's my life's purpose? But I'm like, you know what? It's the summer. I'm just going to live. I'm going to go. And so uh, we were about to, to take off. But the morning of, before we left on this great adventure, we had this custom in our, our group. It was a, a a community of young adults. It was the college career ministry. And whenever someone would go on a mission trip, all the guys would gather together in a small house, just pack the place out with 18 to 30-something-year-olds. And we would gather at 5.30 in the morning for Braveheart, 
and bacon. We would view the Mel Gibson movie, you know, Freedom, William Wallace, all that, and then we would eat bacon. Like no toast, no eggs, no avocados, no fruit, just bacon. And then after watching the movie and eating bacon, we would pray for whoever was leaving. And I remember that morning after watching the movie and eating bacon, they all prayed for us and kind of commissioned us. But then there was this moment where, where Dave, our pastor, he gave us each a book. And this book was special. Everyone knew this is a special moment where he's going to hand us this book. And it, it could be anything. But he, he handed Jeffrey O'Dell Bonesaw this book that had so much meaning and purpose specifically for him. And he handed him the book by John Eldridge called Wild at Heart, discovering the secret of a man's soul, giving men permission to be what God designed them to be, dangerous, passionate, alive, and free. And I was like, wow, that's awesome for him. I'm so, so grateful. And then it was my turn. And I go up to get the book. I'm wondering what it might be. And he hands me a book, and it's titled, Don't Waste Your Life. I'm like, thanks, Dave. Appreciate that. Don't waste your life. And I haven't even read it. I didn't even open it until just recently. And I just realized it was written by John Piper. And the book has like three lines in it that I think sum up purpose very well and answer that question about why you here now. He writes this, God created us to live with single passion to joyfully display his supreme excellence in all spheres of life. The wasted life is a life without this passion. God calls us to pray and think and dream and plan and work, not to be made much of, but to make much of him in every part of our lives. So Lord Jesus, I thank you for this opportunity that we have to make much of you in every part of our lives. I pray, God, that you would receive our lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you. Thank you, Jesus, for what you have done on the cross, what you have done emerging from death. The tomb is empty because of your great power. The exiles came home because of your great power. And Lord, we know that you have great purpose in our lives. So help us to see the world around us and to live every moment for you.